wanted to just take a moment and again and just welcome you tonight and thank you for coming out. I know it was difficult for many of you to make it uh, here and you've definitely risked maybe life and limb for the sake of the Lord here in Hagerstown. So I'm thankful for you guys being here tonight. If you are not part of Hagerstown Church, maybe you're just visiting here tonight, I want to just get you up to speed on where we're at. And so in the year 2019, we intend as a church to walk entirely through the Bible, both through our readings as groups. We'll be reading individually and getting together throughout the week and discussing what we've read, what's, what's God teaching you through the, his word on a weekly basis. It's a beautiful thing. But then also on Sunday mornings as we gather here, I'll be preaching and bringing the text, bringing the, 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 the sermon from the text that we read this week. And so it'll be great. And so this week we've been all over, um, both from in Genesis and in Job, and today we'll get to uh, kind of cap this week off by looking at both Genesis chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 3, and then also the entirety of, of, chapter, 12, or of chapter 15, rather. And so that's going to be exciting. We're in this series called In the Beginning, as you know, uh, possibly, that Genesis actually just means beginnings. And so we're beginning in the beginning, and uh, last week we looked at the fall and promise of redemption, the, the fall and promise of for de- redemption. So God foretells that though, um, though Adam plunged the human race into sin, that God would send the head crusher. That's what we looked at last week. We saw as we ended the sermon, we looked at how Jesus is like David. Jesus defeated the serpent in the valley. And then he, he, he tore off after the Philistines. And we as the children of Israel, in a sense, we run in after him. And as we follow Jesus, as we chase the Philistines down, we ourselves run over the very body, the very head of of Goliath or of Satan. And so God is truly crushing the serpent's head underneath our heel. And so what a beautiful thing. And then also in this, this week's reading, we, we read about the flood. We read, read about Babel. We were introduced to a man named Abram. And Abram, if you didn't know this, maybe your Bible told you this, but Abram means exalted father. Later on, God changes in, in chapter 17. God changes his name to the father of the multitudes. But for this evening, I'm, just, I'm not going to go back and forth. We're just going to call him Abraham this evening. And so we, we've already read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Again, we'll read chapter 15 together. And I believe that as you look at the text with me this evening, that you'll see this, that God who makes promises not, not only makes them, but he keeps them. A God who makes covenants not only makes them, but he also keeps them. He fulfills them. And so as we walk through the Bible, you'll see this. You'll see that it, as it starts in Genesis and works all the way through Revelation, that there's this thread that weaves through all of them. And it's this theme of redemption, and it's pointing toward restoration. And so it starts with creation. Quickly we see the fall. We went over that last week. And now we'll begin to chase down this theme, this idea of God's unfolding of redemption. Now he'll make things right. Not only make them right, but totally restore in the end. So as we chase this theme, stay with me tonight. You'll see how it it anchors in, even dovetails with what we looked at last week. So tonight we'll see just another piece of the gospel being unfolded before our eyes. We'll begin by looking at God's covenant with Abraham, this, uh, this um, covenant that he created. We'll end with, it look, with looking at it actually being fulfilled. Here's my hope for you tonight. If you're a Christian, I hope that this evening is an encouragement to you. As you look at God's faithfulness, it, just, it, it brings comfort to you. God was faithful to Abraham so many years ago, and he'll be faithful to you as well. If you're here this evening and you're an unbeliever, I want to let you know that we're we welcome you. We're glad that you're here tonight. My hope for you is that you'd be drawn in by God's grace, that you again would see the faithfulness of Yahweh, that you'd see the faithfulness of the God of the Bible, of the God of Abraham, and you'd be encouraged to, to place your trust in him as well this evening. So for all of us, I think this is where we'll land. We'll land in praising and making much of Jesus this evening. 
So let's begin by looking at uh, God's word. And so Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we looked at that. It's the call of Abraham. Let's read it quickly. Verses, verses 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you may all the families of the earth be blessed. So we ask God to, to bless the reading of his word. God, these are your words. These are the words of life. So as we come to them tonight, we pray that you would give that to us, that you'd give us life. Father, as we've encouraged already, would you, would you, would you see fit to grant that those who are yours tonight would be encouraged of the past and of the future, that we'd, we'd find a renewed hope in you this evening, that we'd make much of you. Father, for the one that's far from you, we pray that through your, the reading of your word, through the preaching of your word, through the singing of it, that you'd draw these folks to yourself as well. And we pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. And so we look at the text, and as we look at it, we'll see this, that God is a covenant maker, and then we'll also see that God is a covenant keeper. And so let's jump into the text looking at God as a covenant maker. It's nothing short of grace that God would approach this man by the name of Abraham. See, Abraham wasn't actually looking for God. He hadn't approached God, attempting to broker a deal to, to secure his own righteousness. Abraham, he was actually from Ur of Chaldees. And Abraham's a pagan man living in a pagan land, and he comes from a pagan family. And yet God comes to him. So this whole story of Abraham, as soon as we're introduced to him, it leads up, it just, it just comes out of the gate and shows us this grace of God, that God would come and approach him. I'm going to show you something that you just you can't afford to miss tonight. You may be thinking that this story is quite different from your story. You might think, I'm nothing like Abraham. and The, not, the very few things could be farther from the truth. This is your story as well. Nobody seeks after God. Nobody goes on their own looking for God. And everyone who has found God has found God because God found you. So this is our story as well, that God would come and look for us. And that's just grace on display. We can actually stop the sermon right now. And perhaps we should because the snow is falling. But I think we could really stop right here. And just end the night by praising Jesus and making much of him. That he would come to us in our fallen estate. If that doesn't bring you to the place where you want to just stand and worship the Lord, then something is wrong, truly. Then you don't truly understand how far from God you really were. That God would come to us, the creator of the universe, and come after us in our pagan estate. Nothing short of a miracle. And this is what we saw last week as we saw Adam and Eve, after they had fallen from grace, after they'd fallen in sin, what happened? Well, God came and did what? He came and looked for them. He pursued them in the garden. He told them, in the, in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And yet, God came to them and he approached them. He didn't treat them like we would sometimes treat our children or treat those who have disobeyed us. That's not what God did. He extended grace. So this, we begin to see the character of God revealed, don't we? It's a beautiful thing. That's one of the most important things as we look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament does a fantastic job of introducing us to this God, Yahweh, and telling us about his characteristics, a little bit about himself. This is a beautiful thing. And so be paying attention for things like that. The sovereign God of the universe, the creator that we saw last week, he also comes to Abraham, and that's what we're looking at tonight. And so perhaps even now as you're hearing me speak this, as you're hearing this story of Abraham begin to unfold, maybe the Lord is drawing yourself as well to him. And I pray that that would happen. We, if it does, if the Lord does draw you, would you just trust his promise? God's grace, we see it right here in this covenant-making section. Another thing that I want you to notice is the fact that Abraham is 75 years old 
His wife is 70, or 50, uh, 65. 75 and 65. They're not spring chickens. They've gone quite some time through their lives worshiping some other God, not worshiping the true God. You might think, well, he, he, Abraham is too old to learn new tricks. He's too old. He's gone too far. He's too steeped in his religion to change, to change his mind. Oftentimes I think about that. I think about those whom the Lord has put around us, maybe from other religions, other areas of the world, and I think they've, they're so steeped in their culture. They're so steeped in their religion that they would never listen to the gospel. Maybe perhaps you have a Muslim that lives close to you. They are from a Muslim-majority country. You think they'll never hear the gospel. They'll never listen to it. They have to leave everything. And here we see a picture of God calling Abraham out of everything that he ever knew. And Abraham comes to God and places his faith in him. Maybe, you're, maybe you live next to a Mormon. Maybe you live somewhere next to an atheist or you work in the same cubicle as somebody that, from an Eastern religion. You think they'll never listen. They'd never understand. They'd never try. And maybe they wouldn't, but the Lord is not too far. He's not too difficult. This week you read in your reading that nothing is too hard for God, is it not? He is the God of the impossible. And so as you consider who is so far from God, that's just a miracle that God is, that, that sets the, the table for God to do a miracle that nobody could receive the glory for except for himself. So nothing is too hard for God, but also nothing is off the table for God. Look at what God called Abraham to leave. He called him to leave everything. He tells him to leave his country, his people, his family, his heritage, everything he ever knew. God calls to Abraham and says, you need to leave that. And so there's an obvious gain here for Abraham. We see that as Abraham walks away from this, he's walking into a relationship with God. We think that's so much different than us. We have everything to lose as we walk away from what we have and towards God. Perhaps you've thought that. Perhaps you look at your life and you think, I've got so much to lose if I follow God. If I really give of my life, my time, talent, and treasure, and everything I am, if I give that to the Lord, I have so much to lose. Again, your situation is no different than Abraham. We sang tonight, and I hope that you believe that. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All I have is Christ. Is that your testimony tonight? It's the testimony of Abraham, and it's true. It's the testimony of you. It's true whether you actually see it that way or not. All you have is Christ, if you have anything at all. So God is constantly seeing, or calling us into a deeper relationship with him. And that's what he does with Abraham. Abraham, hey, I'm calling you to myself. You need to move from Ur of Chaldees. You need to move from Terah. You need to move into the Canaan land. He calls, or I'm sorry, Haran into the Canaan land. He calls us to that. What's he calling you to? Most often God calls us when we're most comfortable to do something that is out of our comfort zone. And when that takes place, when he calls us out of our comfort zone to the unknown, that's where we see the most growth in our lives. Oftentimes, and that's what we see here with Abraham. So a reflective question for you this evening. Where is God calling you? What is God calling you to do? Where is God wanting to grow you or stretch you to? if it's out of your comfort zone, most times that's where you're going to see the most growth in your life. John Calvin paraphrases what God says here. He says, this is, this is what God says in his words. I command you to go forth with eyes closed and forbid you to inquire where I lead you until you have renounced your country, you shall have given yourself holy and have given yourself holy to me. Calvin says, man, this is remarkable, this man's faith. 
that he would trust God so much and say, I'm not even going to ask where I'm going. I'm just going to follow you. And indeed, that is real faith. That is great faith. And while it may seem shocking that Abraham would wholly, blindly follow God without a second glance, it's actually not that difficult. Imagine that as you leave this evening, you set out on foot. You're walking home. You're walking through Hagerstown. This would be a beautiful night to, to try this. Um, maybe I actually wouldn't recommend it. But as you're walking home, your, your path takes you down an alleyway in downtown Hagerstown. As you're walking down that alleyway, you run into a stranger. And the stranger uh, offers you a blindfold and, and requests that you don that blindfold and that you follow him by hand. Just let him lead you. Many of you would not be inclined to do so. But change the scenario just a little bit. Perhaps it wasn't so snowy, it wasn't so dark out, and as you walked, you were actually greeted and met by your spouse, or perhaps it was a friend that you knew really well. And they asked you to do the same thing. Hey, put this blindfold on with a smile on their face. You trust this person. Now, for me, I, the, the scenario would end the same. I still would not do it. I don't trust my wife that much, but, and I don't have any good friends. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Maybe you would, but you would be more inclined to trust your spouse or your friend had that scenario been a little different, right? And what's the difference between the two? Well, one's a known commodity, the other is not. One you trust, you have faith in, the other you do not. One character, one person's character you don't really know that well, and it seems shady, it's dark, and they're outside, it seems weird. The other, you know their character, you know their desire for you, and you know that it's good. So you'd be more inclined to trust one versus the other. So church, this evening we can trust the Lord. We, not, we may not know what tomorrow holds, but we do know who holds tomorrow. We can trust his character. We can trust that what he wants is for his glory and for our good. So would you this evening trust the Lord? Where is it in your life that you're not trusting him? Where is it in your life that you're saying, yes, I'll give you this part of my life, but I won't give you this part? I don't trust your character. I don't know if you know what's best for me. See, it comes down to that. You either don't trust God's ability or you don't trust his character. Which one is it? I pray that you would do both this evening. Last week we looked at the father of lights from whom all good things come. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. And there's no shadow of turning in his character. He always wants what's for our good and for his glory. So even this evening, my wife and I were looking out the window and we thought about just the snow outside. Even the snow that God has given to us, while it may be a little bit dangerous, isn't it a beautiful thing? And it doesn't crush us. Imagine how sensitive we are. Ten feet could have dropped today. When you woke up this morning, you literally could have been buried in, the, in your house. And yet the Lord didn't do that. He gave us a beautiful thing. That What does it do? It marks the ground, right? It just covers it up and it's just a, it's a sight to see. This comes down from the Father of lights, the, the good God who does nothing imperfectly. What a blessing and common grace he's given to us even in that, that snow. So Abraham, he was obedient to God. Will you be? Abraham trusted Yahweh. Will you trust him? So we look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I want you to just, take a, just turn maybe a page or two in your Bible. Turn over to Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to show you a couple verses here, verses 1 through 6. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, it says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household 
will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Briefly here, you see just read an opening comment here on this passage of text. We, hear that, we see that same grace that we saw in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. That we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that God would extend grace to somebody who doesn't deserve it. That Abraham would be able to obtain righteousness as a miracle. It's a gift of grace. Abraham believed. Did he do anything else to earn that blessing from God? No, nothing. He just simply believed that God was extending this grace to him. This is how we're saved today, the same way that we believe in Christ's righteousness is credited to us. We don't earn that righteousness. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Our righteousness is filthy rags, yet God has extended it to us. So in chapter 15 here, though, we see that God has made a promise in the past. As we saw in Genesis chapter 12, he's made a promise that includes both descendants and land. The promise that he has given to him says you're going to have descendants, it's implied in there, and that they'll have land for those descendants to live in. You've got to have both. If you're going to have this great nation, if they're going to number the, 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 as the stars, then you're going to have to have a place for them to live, right? That just that makes perfect sense. And so Abraham, as he's lying on his back, they're out in the desert, right outside his tent. He's looking up at the, at the sky, and he's imagining, he's just daydreaming or nightdreaming about what God has already promised him and all he's planned. He's thinking about that. He's believing it. Then he realizes, well, there's, there's still a problem to God's plan. There's still a, a, a tiny issue that needs to be resolved. You see, he had neither descendant or land. He had neither. He was a traveler. He was a wanderer. He, he lived in a tent. He had no, no children to speak of. Not, none from him and Sarah. So he asked God about it. Look at verse eight, he, or 7 and 8. He, look, he asks God about it. He says, <clears throat> he asks him, and then God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But Abram says, Oh, Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to really know this? Do you have a sign? Can you give me a token? Can you, can you give me some type of proof that you're going to give me both descendants and land? I, I, I really need that sign. And God responds, not, not in anger or in wrath, saying, are you questioning me? Are you questioning my ability? Are you questioning my character? Again, that's not how God answers him. He answers him with grace. And God actually enters here into a covenant, an agreement with Abraham, and he instructs him on how to set this whole thing up. And so he, he teaches him a little bit about the covenant. Abraham wasn't very foreign. That wasn't a foreign idea to him. But God says specifically, this is what you need to do. So look at verses 9 through 12. God says, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought these things to him. He cut them in half, and he laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 8, it says, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? Abram says, I I need to know how I'm going to possess it. God answers, we'll make a covenant. So in, these, in this day, there are, there are many different ways, or several different ways, you could say, to, to fulfill a covenant. There's the salt covenant. There's the shoe covenant. There's uh, several other different variations of that. But then you've got the blood covenant. It's definitely the most serious of all. It involves the death of a creature. It involves the death of an animal. And not only does it involve a death, but it's more than that. 
The blood covenant says this, that whatever, if, if, if either of the parties involved break their part of the covenant, that their blood will be shed. Their very own blood would be shed. So Abram enters, is about to enter into a blood covenant with Yahweh. So what were the terms? What were the agreements that each of the party were going to have? What, who was going to do what? What was God going to do? Let's look at that first. What's his end of the bargain? Well, God says that he'll give land and he'll give descendants. Specifically, I want to just draw your attention to something. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 spoke of not just descendants of Eve, but a descendant of Eve. That was the Messiah. And this is exactly what uh, God is saying that he'll give to Abraham. He'll say, I'll give you land, and I'm going to give you descendants, but I'm also going to give you a descendant. And in that descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's God's end of the bargain. Paul specifically interprets this passage that we're looking at this evening, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 12. He interprets them clearly in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. So if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write that down. I'll read it tonight, but you can revisit it. The Bible says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. These are the words of God that Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the very Christ that we know, that is the offspring that God was speaking of to Abraham, his offspring. Not many, but referring to one. So God's end of the deal. He's going to send us Jesus. He's going to send Abraham Jesus through his line. What was Abraham's end of the bargain? Well, according to the Jewish understanding, Abraham had to be sinless. He had to be perfect. God demanded perfection. And to enter into a deal with God, it would, it would only be fair. You, Abraham was not going to be able to fulfill this. It, it's unadvisable for Abraham to enter into a blood covenant with God because it just would not work out for his favor. He wouldn't be able to fulfill it. From the beginning, Abraham was a sinner. A few weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Abraham was born when? Under which covenant? Not under which covenant, but under whose lead? Under whose rule? Adam's. So in Adam's fall, Abraham had sinned as well. Not only was Adam's mark on him, but also his own sin. Abraham was a sinner in and of himself. He wasn't going to be able to keep up this end of the bargain. Only God could have done that. And yet Abraham, he proceeds. He moves forward with the instructions. He's he's following what God tells him to do. So God tells him to to gather five animals. And this, by the way, it, it, it really means a lot. Nowadays, we, t- that they would gather five animals. Nowadays, if we're going to do a covenant, we might say, well, hey, let's just print a covenant off. I'm going to make a deal with, with Anthony. Hey, Anthony, will you, just, will you print out a covenant? And I look at the paper and I say, Anthony, you've, you've printed this wrong. And he says, no big deal. He crumbles it up. He throws it away. He prints a new one off, right? Well, now we've made a mistake again. The, the amount's not right. And so we crumble that up. We've not wasted anything in this covenant. There's no value. There's no weight in it as long as it's not signed. It's not the case. And these days, the covenant was the very bodies of these animals that weren't cheap. Part of the livelihood of, these, of, the, of, the, of the parties that are involved. So God tells Abraham, go get five expensive animals and sacrifice them. And he lists their age here. They've got to be at least three years old, which is the prime of their life. Able to, able to breed, able to produce milk. Abraham slices, he, he cuts these two animals actually in two. And he lays the pieces aside, side by side. Now the preparation has been made. Now Abraham prepares to commit to this covenant. Everything's ready. The stage is set. Now basically all they have to do, the document's been printed off. It's there. Now they just have to sign. 
Look at verse 12, see what it says. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Notice, just, that, just as Abraham is about to begin this covenant, notice what happens. He falls asleep. No doubt, it's, it's tough work to gather these animals, to bring them to where they need to be, and to butcher the animal in half, and to cut them and to separate them out. That's, that's hard work. It's not an easy task. Abraham doesn't fall asleep here just because he's tired. He's not had a long day. Yesterday I moved. We had a lot of heavy belongings. Chief among them was a piano. And we're carrying this piano up steps and we've carried it out of the house. Now we've carried it into the truck. Now we've carried it out of the truck into the house. And and I'm exhausted. My forearms are burning. I'm tired. And I wasn't by myself. We had a crew and they were there helping and they're tired. When everybody left, we got all of our stuff in. the, The snow started to fall. You know what I did? I just fell down and I fell into a deep sleep. That's not what happens here. Matter of fact, the word deep sleep is the exact same word that we read of Adam. That God literally put Adam to sleep. He performed this rib extraction and then creates Eve. It's the same word here. It's not, while it's the same word, it's the same. God is the, is the same one that's put both Adam to sleep and now Abraham to sleep. It's not the exact same type of sleep, and I'll tell you why. Because Adam has no recollection of what has taken place. He wakes up and there's his wife, Eve. But Abraham while he falls into a sleep, it's, it's more of a lethargy. He's able to observe, but he's not able to participate. He can't move. He's there, and he's seeing what's taking place. Also, he, he, while he's not moving and while he can't speak, he can be afraid, and that he is. He feels the weight of this covenant. It's the darkness, as it says, this dreadful and great darkness falls on them. It was very ominous. Abraham knew the seriousness, the weight of what was about to happen. And yet, while he's conscious, God renders him still and unable to move. Look at verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will, be their, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Verse 17 says, And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I will give you this land, from the river, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the land of the Ken- Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God tells Abraham to hear that what will happen to his people in Egypt. He foretells that. You know the story of the children of Israel, Abraham's folk, the Hebrews, that they, they, we'll get to this in a few weeks, but they'll end up in Egypt. And as they're there, they become servants. They serve for over 400 years. God rescues them out of there. And, the, and here, what a beautiful thing that God prophesies to Abraham. And again, this adds to the terror, to the greatness as Abraham hears of this, then he's also encouraged. Not only is this a terrible thing, but the Lord will rescue them from that. And God goes on to say his covenant. Genesis 15, 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord had made a covenant with Abraham. It's really odd what happens Abram's got it all ready. It's, it's laid out. The document is ready to be signed, as it were. Abraham's about to, to do it. He's getting ready, and then all of a sudden, 
He can't move. He's still, he can't participate any farther. And God begins to speak. Before Abraham knows it, the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot, they pass between those two pieces. And God has made the covenant, the covenant signed. So it's odd. Let's look at these two uh, pieces here as we figure out what has happened. First, the smoking fire pot. It's, it's, this pot is some sort of an oven or it's a, it's, a, it's a fire starter of sorts. And it's likely filled with coals and contains holes in the side so that the embers can breathe. And if you wanted to start a fire, you'd carry that around and you'd be able to start a fire. You could use the coals from that, that fire earlier in the morning. You could use that thing and you could, you could uh, transport those coals to a new place to start a new fire. Same word for an oven, though. It could be a, a refiner's fire. There's several different reasons here or things here. But the, the idea that we want to look at is the adjective that's attached to it. And that's it's smoking. So we see a fire pot. This fire pot is smoking and it passes through. What's interesting is the, the smoke. Smoke is hardly ever associated. It's never associated with man. It's always associated with God. Isaiah 30, verse 27 says, Look, Yahweh comes from far away, his anger burning and heavy with smoke. And his lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a consuming fire. Remember that verse? But it says here that Yahweh, the Lord, is heavy with smoke. Psalm 18, 8 says, Smoke arose from his nostrils and consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. Again, not associated with man, but associated with God. And his anger is just justness his holiness so God would lead the children of Israel through the wilderness with a cloud by day this cloud was uh, a cloud or maybe smoke on Mount Sinai when God gave the covenants to Moses there was we read in we'll read in Exodus shortly God descends on the mountain and what what surrounds the mountain what engulfs the mountain again smoke so it's a sign of the presence of God and this is a symbol of God as it passes through those parts of God signing the covenant. This is God's signature here, that God would sign it. But then after the pot goes through, there's another item along with it. And that's the flaming torch. Again, fire, the adjective there. Never used to describe men, always used to describe God. Again, our God is a consuming fire. Remember, God, the, God spoke to Moses through what? Not through a smoking bush, but through a burning bush. And in the wilderness, the counterpart of the cloud of smoke or, or a cloud by day was the fire by night. These are the symbols of God. So here we have the, the smoke symbolizing God and the fire also symbolizing God. God signs his end of the deal, but what about Abraham? Abraham's not signed anything. He's just laying there. He's just sitting there in a trance watching this whole thing unfold and take place. Wondering when is it his turn. He doesn't want to sign it anyway. This is too great. He's, he's, it's terrible. But that's the point. He's unable to contribute to this covenant. And God knows it. There's nothing that Abraham could do in this covenant. And so typically, both parties would pass through. It's, it's, it, it, it's argued about whether, whether uh, in what fashion. Sometimes they say it's the lesser would go through and then the greater party would go through. Some people say the greater party would go through and the lesser party sometimes wouldn't until after. But here, neither one includes Abraham. Neither one of these is a symbol for Abraham. They're both a symbol for God. God says, I will keep what? Both ends of the agreement. And again, what do we see here this evening? Again, we see grace. God knowing that this would consume Abraham, that he could not fulfill it. 
If Abraham was able to clumsily stand to his feet and stumble through this blood trailed through these animals, then he would have been doomed. He would just lay there. That's what God wanted them to do, though, to just observe and to see. I think of Psalm chapter 3. David, he's running from his son Absalom. He pens these words, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verses 1 through 6, Psalm chapter 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Verse 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. When God approaches Abraham, what does he say in chapter 15, verse number 1? He says, Abraham... I am your shield and I am your reward. What does David say of God here? You are my shield and you are my glory. You lift my head. And then David says, I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Verse 5 says, I laid down and slept. I awoke again. And what happened? The Lord sustained me. He says, I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. While Abraham rests, what does God do? God works. God makes a promise. God fulfills a co- or, uh, promises this covenant here. You see in David here, while David rests, what does God do? God works. David can't defeat his foes. David can't argue against these folks. There's too many. He lays down. He rests. And what does God do? God fulfills the covenant. God fulfills his duty for Abraham, what he promised he would do. And so God makes a covenant here. He's a covenant-making God. He's a promise-making God. That's what he does. Not only does he make covenants, but he also keeps them. I want you to see that here this evening as well. So he's a covenant-maker, but he's also a covenant-keeper. For 1,500 years after this covenant that God makes with Abraham, Jewish priests in the temple would daily sacrifice lambs. For 1,500 years after this date, every single day, whether it was in the tabernacle or in the temple, they would sacrifice a lamb. As if they were saying, God, we believe that you will meet our needs. We're, we're depending on you. The priest, as they sacrifice that, as represent, representatives for the children of Israel, they're saying, God, we're going to lay here, we're going to sleep, knowing that you, through your sacrifice, that you are going to fulfill your end of the bargain, that you are going to fulfill the covenant. The animal would be, would be killed daily, signifying how much God hates sin. Someone, something has to die to pay for that sin, for the inability to keep the covenant. No, day, no doubt Abraham would not have and did not keep his covenant of faithfulness. He didn't. So as we think for 1,500 years, innocent lambs were slain. And then we see God working again. A half-naked man, he stumbles out of the city in the shadow of the temple even. He's beaten and he's bloody. A cross is on his back. He's followed by a vicious crowd that is cheering and taunting. He's led to the top of a hill. There he's laid down on that very cross that he carried and he's nailed to it. He's raised up and it's dropped into the hole. As his body is torn apart and his blood pours out, he cries, it is finished. What is finished though? Jesus' body is torn instead of Abraham's. Think about that. Jesus' body is torn and his very blood is shed instead of ours. Why, why would he do such a thing? You see, as Paul said of that 
of that work in Genesis chapter 15, Paul says it's not the promise is not descendants. The promise is descendant. It's being fulfilled here in, this, in, in, in Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between thy seed. He's speaking to the serpent. Between thy seed and her seed. He says, your, your seed, Satan, will bruise his heel. But his heel will crush your head. Here, this is what we observe taking place. So as we see these Old Testament passages, they're all pointing back. That thread, it makes its way to the cross in the Gospels. Jesus crying out, it is finished. Sacrificial system, it's finished. The grip that Satan has on your life, that's finished as well. The devil, he's finished. The, The bondage to sin, that is finished. Death no longer has a hold on us. The grave no longer can contain us. And sin is no longer shackling us. What? It is finished. I'll show you one more thing this evening as we see the fulfillment of God. You see it's here. God making a covenant with man. God making a promise and now he's here keeping that promise. I want you to see one more thing. One of the objects that passes through the blood, what was it? It was the smoking fire pot. The smoke, remember, it, it, it represents and, and, and pictures the presence of God in the Bible. But remember that the smoke is not the presence of God. It's a sign of the presence. It's, it's, you've heard the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so the, the smoke is not God. It's a sign that God is present. I want you to see this about smoke. It, it separates us. If you were in an area where the, the smoke was intense, climbing a mountain perhaps, and as you begin to climb that mountain, you realize, hey, the smoke is too, is too strong. What does it do? It, it fences you. You can't go any farther. There's smoke in a room that you were in. What would you do? You'd get, you'd get low. You can't abide in the smoke, can you? You can't stay there. You couldn't exist there. It runs us off. It separates us from the fire. So imagine that even as God protected Sinai, as he descended there, he protected it with smoke. It pushed us away. It symbolizes the fact that we cannot be in God's presence. We cannot be in the presence of smoke. We can't stay there. In the temple, there are two rooms, both in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. There's two rooms. You've got the the holy place, and then you've got the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And those two rooms are separated by a curtain. And that curtain, it it separated the holy of holies from the most holy, or the holy place from the most holy place. And inside the most holy place was where God would abide. That's where his Shekinah glory would rest. And that veil was a separator. It protected the priests, from going where they shouldn't go, from seeing what they shouldn't see. What's interesting is that as Jesus died, the very moment that he died, the Lord God ripped the curtain in half. The thing that was separating man from him, the very thing was was torn apart from top to bottom, showing that it wasn't man that did it, that it was only God that could have done it. Separated this dividing wall. It was the smoke. It, it separated us from God and man, and now it's been removed for all. The part of God's holiness and glory that separated us, it no longer held us back. But it wasn't the, actually the holiness that was ripped, if you think about it. God's holiness, his glory, his justice is still intact, even today. What was, what was actually torn? What was actually broken? God's glory wasn't decreased. 
It was the sinfulness of man that was resolved. It was your sin that was taken away. That once was holding you back from being in the presence of God is no longer there. And now we, the dwelling place of God, is where it is with men. Praise be to God. The sinfulness of man, that's resolved in a way to the presence of God now provided. This evening, I hope that as you think about this passage, that you would say, as John said, when he saw Jesus coming, as he's there baptizing at Jordan, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Is that you this evening? Are you there with John saying, That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? He's sent by God, the Father, who what? Not just makes covenants, but he also keeps them. He also keeps them. So the sacred veil was massive. And so is your sin. And yet it didn't hold God back. He tore it. The veil was torn like those animals were. Jesus' body bled like those animals bled. And yet Abraham had no, no part in the covenant. God fulfilled it. He made the covenant and he fulfilled it. And the offer goes out to you this evening as well. So if you're a Christian here, we'll, we'll end where we started. If you're a Christian here this evening, rejoice in that. God has made a promise, and he will keep that promise. If you're here tonight and you you don't know what we're talking about, you don't understand this, just know this, through the blood of Jesus being shed, he has provided a way for you. If you'll repent of your sins and place your faith in the work that Jesus has done on the cross, that you too will be saved. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Let's praise God. Father, we thank you for this truth. We look at this evening. That though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Though Abraham, as we saw tonight, was far from you, and he didn't want you, he didn't desire to have any part with you, yet your mercy extended to him. Your grace was made available to him. Though he had no righteousness of his own, by faith he was given righteousness. God, that's our testimony this evening. As a church, the people that you've called out to yourself, that we have no righteousness of our own, but you have extended mercy to us. We weren't looking for you. You came looking for us. Jesus, we make much of you this evening. We thank you for the testimony that you've given to us and the sacrifice that you've made. We pray that as we press forward in Hagerstown, that you would be lifted up you draw all men to yourself and that this, this city itself would say, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. We pray these, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?